At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. So many times when we talk about healthcare, there's this feeling or this mindset that it's highly politicized and it's either this way or it's that way and there's no room in between and these things don't work and this one does and all that kind of fun stuff. Obviously, from where we come from, we believe that the free market has a big big impact in there, but also social safety nets are very important to people and there's never a one-size-fits-all approach. Curious conversation that I'm really excited to have with our next guest, David Chrisman, the creator of The Great Social Experiment, a podcast documentary series. And this is intriguing to me because The Great Social Experiment is built off of America's experiment with single-payer healthcare, universal healthcare. David, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Chris. Now, in my introduction, I, I apologize if I didn't do enough justice there, but I find this concept so fascinating given you know today's political landscape when it comes to healthcare. It's either government pays all the bills or government pays zero bills, and you know we go back to completely free market. I know there's purists out there on both sides of the aisle, but this is fascinating because I, we love pointing to things that are actually working. Like what has worked? What have we tried? Are there better ways of doing things? Give us your take on the great social experiment, what you've been working on and how that impacts that overall discussion. Okay, well, let me take you a little bit back in history, uh, back to the early 1960s. And that was when dialysis first became an outpatient procedure in Seattle. And there was one dialysis clinic and about 50 times the amount of patients who needed dialysis. So at that point, the doctors had no way of choosing who could get this life-extending treatment, right? Transplant had already been something that was done, but immunosuppressants really weren't prevalent. People really gave to twins, and that was really the extent of kidney transplant around that time. So with not knowing who to give this treatment to, the doctors created a layperson's committee, which became known as the God Committee or the Life and Death Committee. And it was their job to basically decide out of the people who are medically eligible, who got this treatment? Because I think they only had about three machines. And so there was a, a politician, there was a housewife, there was a labor leader, there was uh, a minister. And as a group, there were seven of them. 
they basically did a de facto are you worth are you worth living are you worth saving yeah 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 and none of them really wanted to do it but they knew that in some way somebody had to make these decisions and so in in the early to mid 1960s your best chance of survival if you had kidney failure in the state of Washington was to be an educated middle class man who had children to support because if you were really rich then they figured oh well your wife could could handle everything and so dialysis was a very rare and remote and expensive procedure up until the early 1970s life magazine covered this there was an outcry that there was this life and death committee that was making these decisions and so congress under president nixon decided to extend this treatment really not just this treatment but to absorb everybody with kidney failure into the Medicare system. So if you were 26 years old and you had kidney failure, the government would start to pay for all of your health care. So it's not just that these people were getting just dialysis or just kidney transplantation. And so there was this experiment that started in 1972 where the government paid for a large portion of the people who had kidney failure in our country. Private insurance still has a role, but after 30 months of being on a private payer, you're automatically transitioned into this program because the private payers don't want to pay two to three or four times the the, the rate that Medicare pays. And that's essentially what they've been getting. So there is kind of this mix. Uh, it's largely a single-payer-ish type of system, but private payers do have a role. Uh, and if you take a look at this story, it's really fascinating because, in a sense, it's a microcosm of our whole healthcare system. And you can say, well, if this should be the pinnacle of what's possible as a single-payer universal program for our larger system. And in some ways, it's helped patients tremendously who need dialysis. It's been a life raft. But when you take a look at access to the better of the two treatments, it essentially reflects our larger system in terms of who's getting access to quality care, access, and cost. It's the same demographic that has benefited. People who are of low socioeconomic status, a lot of racial minorities, tend to have less access to this wait list to begin with. We have to remember that in the United States, there are about 600,000 people on dialysis in this country. And the American taxpayer is paying for the majority of this. And it's hugely expensive. To put this into context, the Department of Education is about 2 to 3% of our whole national budget. Kidney care alone is 1%. So out of every $100 we're spending as a country, about one of those dollars goes to these patients. So even if you don't have kidney failure, you don't know anybody who has kidney failure, this still affects you. And so it's worth knowing how this system has done and what lessons we can take to the larger system. Yeah, I'm curious. And and I love the history going into this to tell the whole story. You know, it does kind of worry me that there's this panel of people that I have no idea. And they're looking at my resume saying this person should live and this person should not live. Has this program been successful in your mind? So the, the panel of people was basically disbanded once Medicare took over. The reason why there was a panel of people is because it was so incredibly expensive. But once Medicare got involved, 
it opened the floodgates to basically everybody who needed it. There became a whole market for kidney care. And so you had a bunch of originally doctors, independent doctors and hospitals opening up dialysis clinics because it was guaranteed payment. And then as the years went on, you had corporations come in and start to gobble up a lot of these independent practices. And now I would say 80% of the industry is run by corporations, probably about 70% by two of them. So it's almost a duopoly. Now, I'm curious, we're talking about kidneys and, and, and dialysis, and it, it sounds, I had no idea the cost of this, but that sounds egregious. You know, everything in healthcare is almost like funny money uh, to us a lot of times. And, it's, yeah, it's f- no, no relevance to any, it's like its own little country. <laughs> oh, it, it, well, it's probably bigger than a lot of different countries just from the medical industrial complex. <laughs> right. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, but in terms of the cost, I'm saying, it's like right. they have, it's not founded in reality. And I'm curious, like, why did Medicare scoop up kidney treatment? Why not anything else? Or why did they even do this in the first place? Because there were all these people whose lives could be extended through dialysis. Remember, dialysis is the only life-extending treatment for organ failure. You can't really extend somebody's heart that long. You can't extend, certainly, you know, somebody's liver that long or pancreas. This was the first artificial organ. And so the idea that we could be helping these people, this whole experiment started out with incredibly altruistic intent. It was to help people who otherwise would die without the treatment. And so that is why there is this this special entitlement. Sure, sure. And, 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 you know, if there's only like three dialysis machines that exist in the world, like that's going to be hard to get in there unless you're at the top, you know, you just pay your way to the front of the line, perhaps. So, yeah, but what I can't wrap my, my mind around is like, okay, that was 60 years ago. Has innovation and treatment not accelerated to drive down cost and drive down access to where we don't need government to step in there and use taxpayer dollars. Like, where's the innovation and why isn't it happening right now? So the answer to that is it still costs quite a bit of money to keep people on dialysis. It's a procedure now about half of the people on dialysis are over the age of 65. A lot of them are not wealthy. They don't have a good support system. And so they're making a push to do this at home, but it still costs money for the materials you still need a doctor to oversee it, um, That, which, of course, doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be the government involved, but who's going to pay for it? Once you're on dialysis, a lot of these people are too sick to work, and dialysis in of itself also takes up so much part of their day. On average, we're talking three, four times a week. In general, it's three times a week, about three to four hours at a time. But the more dialysis you get, the better that you'll be. Transplantation, though, is where we really need to be. We have 600,000 people on dialysis in this country, which to put in perspective is more than the population of Wyoming. So you have 600,000, but you only have about 88 to 90,000 people on this wait list for a kidney transplant. And a kidney will do, it works 24 seven, right? And so these people, while it's not a complete cure, it's light years better than being on dialysis. Your kidneys make urine. So imagine, I mean, it's not the best analogy, but imagine if you could only pee three times a week. 
you'd have that fluid build up, right? And so dialysis takes off that fluid. It removes a lot of the toxins, but it is not even close to what a, a normal kidney would do. And so we have about, like I said, about 90,000 people on this wait list for a transplant. Well, why not 600,000? And the answer to that is because probably a good portion of them are too sick or too old to be transplanted. The doctors are not going to give somebody a deceased donor kidney that could go to a 25-year-old with their whole life ahead of them if you're like 92. But with that said, what percentage should be on the list? And what I found out through my own reporting is that it should be over 50% of people that should be on the wait list from the dialysis population. What holds people back from joining the list? A lot of misinformation, a lot of no information. So dialysis is monopolized by two companies, DeVita and Fresenius. And at the present rate, the free market system doesn't incentivize getting to transplantation. Well, is, is there a free market system out there? Because everything I'm hearing you say is it's all government funded. And when government gets involved in stuff, there's a ton of waste. And, and we agree on that. It's like, is there innovation? Is there a free market? Is there competition to help spur lower cost? So it's a mix just like everything else, right? So yes, there there is, I'm sure, some waste. But if you compare, for example, Medicare in general to private insurance, they are far more efficient in terms of the amount of money that's going to patient care and the amount of money that is spent just uh, doing the administrative stuff. When it comes to kidney transplant, the U.S. government serves as the primary payer, but they are not doing the dialysis themselves. Just like Medicare and just like whatever it is, they're paying DeVita, Fresenius, and other corporations or private independent clinics to do this dialysis, just like they pay for the kidney transplants. They're not coming in with, you know, with government officials and saying, hey, we're going to do the transplant. They pay the hospital, and the hospital does it for them. So I think it's too complicated to say, oh, government, therefore, waste. Um, Because in some ways, the government, (laughs) everybody has their own opinion on this. I know. I'm laughing. I'm laughing at that one. I'm like, usually those two words do go hand in hand together. But I mean, in your scenario, like, where is, if I'm the hospital and saying, look, the Medicare is paying really well, and I'm going to keep doing everything. There's no incentive to lower the costs or lower the barriers to getting more people on here because they know that, hey, I'm making a lot of money doing this. Well, so I, I think it really depends. I think it's too complicated to just frame it in that perspective. And we're dealing with human lives and I, you know, it's not being flippant or anything like that. But usually when a third party payer comes in, government is a huge barrier to innovation. We see that, Right. Right. When, you know, it's an extending, life extending. Again, I'm not going to go black and white of you got to pay cash for everything you do and the government has no vault. There's safety nets built into society. The government definitely made, I would say, fumbles with this program. And that's partly a lot of my series goes into that. But it also talks about the stuff that they've gotten right, not just at this system, uh, but with the larger system in general. The cost of care and private insurance is increasing far more rapidly than the cost of Medicare. And that's despite Medicare having an older and sicker population. And when I say far more rapidly, I mean far more rapidly. The problem with kidney care is that when you have a duopoly and they're both multi-billion dollar corporations and the more people that they have 
for every person that is transplanted, that's one less customer for them, right? And so they did, as it turns out, try to make their systems more efficient. But what that resulted in, a lot of people would argue, was poor patient care. And that's not the government. That's the corporations. That is the free market, in a sense, right? I don't know if I would go that far. I mean, government is, is paying the bills, right? There's no incentives to get there. And so people, you know, look, people are lazy, people are greedy, and they're going to go like, look, here's this easy money out here from Uncle Sam. Why should we? And, and I think you hit it right. So, you know, Medicare doesn't incentivize these hospitals or, or centers, excuse me, the treatment centers to actually cure people. They incentivize them as long as they're still on that. And so I totally agree. It's a misalignment of incentives up and down this particular scenario. Right. And so what this all comes down to is volume versus value. And I'm sure I don't know enough about your company yet, but I'm sure that's part of what the sale is, right? Which is we're going to try to provide value for customers and for patients that are not getting value in the larger system. And you're right. When when it comes to the larger system now, it's a fee-for-service system. And when it came to kidney care, it wasn't a fee-for-service, it was capitated, but it's still you still made money on volume. So the more patients you could get in and out of a dialysis treatment, the more money you would make. The more patients a nephrologist could oversee the care of on dialysis, the more money they made. Of course, the problem with this is that the more patients you have, the less you're able to spend time on each person. And so it becomes... People have like likened it to you know a factory line, uh, where they're just getting people in and out, in and out. So in in some respects, they did have more efficiency, but it was at the cost of patients. They were able to bring the cost down in some respects of kidney care because they hired cheaper labor, they used fewer people in terms of dialysis techs, etc less nurses, more technicians. And so that's what, what you saw. But here's what one thing I would challenge you with, which is, can healthcare be a free market to begin with? And I think that is something that I haven't been convinced of. So let me ask you, do you think healthcare can be a free market? Sure. And, and, you know, going back, you know, we run into this problem when, you know, insert diabetes instead of dialysis, let's say diabetes, right? Sure. If you keep going, if you're diabetic, you're going to go see your employed physician every three months, they're going to spend 10 minutes with you. They are not incentivized to heal you, to get you better. Now, when our model, you know, you brought up, you know, Freedom Health Works, our physicians are very much incentivized to be on the same side as the patient. Because in a hospital scenario, you don't earn any more money if you cure diabetes, right, off of that particular person. In our model, that person is going to keep coming back because they're like, oh, my gosh, I trust my doctor. You actually healed me. Thank you. I'm not paying just for sick care, right? So, you know, to answer your question, do I think that uh, free market can't exist in healthcare? Yeah, it did up until 60 years ago, right? Now, the next question, follow-up is, okay, who are going to be winners and losers in that? And usually the follow-up is, does that mean completely abolishing any type of social programmers or safety net? That one, I'm going to say, look, look, we're too far down the path. You can't correct that right now. So I would say, you know, there has to be a safety net out there. And we do that with Medicaid programs and all kinds of stuff. Medicare and Medicaid are both 
uh, safety net programs. Before Medicare yeah, came exactly. out, a good percentage of seniors were in poverty. And Medicare actually lifted a lot of them out of poverty. And what a lot of people actually don't know is that Medicare also desegregated the whole South. <laughs> so it provided access to care to minorities as well, to black people. So I do think, in, in my opinion, that there is a role for the government to play. And I, I think when we look at the free market, we ask ourselves, do people plan on getting sick? Do people plan on whether they get into an accident? And the effect that's going to have on them for the rest of their life. When you're in an ambulance, now I know that you guys do prim- deal primarily with primary care physicians, but when you're in an ambulance and you have a heart attack, no one's doing a Yelp search on on the cheapest and best value in terms of a hospital. Sure. You're just taken and you have absolutely no control over those prices. And you don't really have a control over what the rest of your life, depending on how injured you are or what, what, what state you're in. So to me, I think the key to healthcare is how to incentivize people to provide that value care and where you can't provide value care. That is, and there's where a the lot of ingredients here, David. And, and, you know, in these scenarios, I, I always tell people like, don't, don't just rush into the one or 2% likelihoods, you know, the ambulances, the really bad stuff, the 600,000 people on dialysis. Let's focus on what we need every day. Right. right. And that's where the free market can really thrive. We innovate, we bring costs down. Cause in your scenarios, like, if you're unconscious in an ambulance, you don't know what that's going to cost you, right? And then you have insurance, which is a risk-adjusted financial tool, same as like a homeowner's insurance should function, similar to a home insurance you know, policy where we have a massive outlay of cash, a very valuable asset that I don't throw my insurance card down for a leaky toilet, you know? So th- it's always the what-if scenario. And I think a lot of the insurance industry, which again is very close to a single payer right now, Medicare is like... 60, 70% of all claims paid. And then there's about four other insurance companies. So it's it's close to getting that monopoly side of it, which people don't really realize. If we broke that up and said, all right, let's bring transparency, let's bring competition back into this. I think the free market works for the vast majority of people's everyday needs. It's the emergent care. It's the really bad health conditions that, like you said, you can't predict. What do you do from that standpoint? That's where insurance and plans and safety nets absolutely have a role in modern day society. David, we're going to take a quick break, hear back from our sponsor, Freedom Doc. Physician burnout is a killer. It is driving our best and brightest out of medicine. The only solution to burnout is to be your own boss. The easiest way to be your own boss is to join the Freedom Doc Physician Network. Freedom Doc is a unified consumer brand and will fully finance your practice so that you can enjoy a healthier lifestyle, take better care of patients, and spend more time with your family. You focus on patients. Freedom Doc focuses on your business. So if you're ready to be your own boss, visit our website, freedomdoc.care, to learn more and schedule a consultation with one of our experts. Freedom Doc, accessible concierge healthcare. Back to the episode, we're talking to David Christman, creator of The Great Social Experiment, podcast documentary series detailing really the start of dialysis back in the 60s in Seattle. And it's absolutely fascinating because it opens up so many other doors. But David, how did you get started? Why, how did this become something where you're like, I am obsessed by this idea. I have to dive in. I have to tell this story. So I actually have a background in film production, journalism, and then film production. I got my graduate degree in film school. So I worked in Hollywood for probably about a decade in my late 20s and 30s. But I have had 
run-ins with the healthcare system. And I've seen how inefficient and the problems that we've had firsthand, not just with myself, but with family and friends. And it seems like healthcare right now, people aren't incentivized to go see their doctor and the doctors aren't incentivized to do the best job they can for a variety of reasons. It's not that they don't want to, it's that they're in a culture and system that doesn't really allow it or reward it. I've always been a writer and I read an article about something called kidney chains. So there's a registry, it's called the National Kidney Registry, and they do matching for incompatible pairs. So Chris, let's say you need a kidney, I need a kidney, right? And you have a sibling that's willing to give to you and I have a sibling that's willing to give to me, but we're incompatible, right? What they have been able to do is throw us into an algorithm and figure out, well, your sibling is a match for me and my sibling's a match for you. And then there's a swap done. And this is usually done with all four of us under anesthesia, just in case someone decides they want to uh, renege, which rarely I think has ever happened, but that's the way they've had to do it. What the National Kidney Registry started to do is say, hey, there are people that want to donate a kidney and want nothing in return. And so that person would give to you, your sibling would give to me, and my sibling would pay it forward. And it becomes a chain. It doesn't have to be done simultaneously. And I read an article in the New York Times about a 30 or 35 person chain or link chain, which means 70 operations going all around the country where they're flying kidneys to New York and then Los Angeles. And and I thought this was mesmerizing from a storytelling point of view. And so I got a posse of experts to consult with me so that I could write a screenplay. And as I was writing the screenplay, and the screenplay is actually fantastic, but as I was writing it, I realized that there was a larger story to tell. The screenplay dealt with the financial incentives behind matching and transplantation and how many more patients we could match if our transplant centers worked together and weren't competitors. But I realized there was a larger story to tell when it came to getting on this list in the first place. And so I decided to produce a podcast as well. Give us a rundown of your podcast. Where do you find it? How many episodes is it? You know, because it's fascinating because we've been doing this for a while and each episode is kind of built on itself right there. We've never really done anything that says, all right, here's a series from start to finish. And it absolutely fascinates me. And I love the storytelling aspects of the great social experiment and even, you know, the, the problem solutions that you've been talking about. Yeah. So there's a trailer and six episode, I guess, an introduction and six episodes. And really what we find through this documentary, when I talk to experts and patients from all over the country, is that at no point along the continuum of care does any provider, including transplant centers, have an incentive to get the most patients transplanted, which is mind boggling. If we want a healthcare system, you would think that everybody from the beginning, primary care, all the way to the recovery room would have an incentive to push as many people into transplantation as possible. And that's just not the case. Our primary care system is, which I'm sure you've had experience with, is run by doctors that are overworked and have burnout and they're paid by volume and as many patients they can get in and out. So the idea of even preventing kidney failure to begin with 
is a huge problem. About 50% of patients crash into dialysis, which means they wake up one day having very few, if any, symptoms before, and they don't feel well. They get rushed to the hospital, and then they're said, hey, you need to be on dialysis. And that surprises me, David. Sorry to pop in there because you know I always view healthcare as an upside-down pyramid right now where primary care, we invest the least amount of money, least amount of time at it. Right. And so when you say, like, you know, we don't, we're not doing enough of these transplants to actually take people off of dialysis, I mean, it shows you where the money is. I mean, that's, that's pure and simple because usually – at the surgery level, like that's where a lot of the time and resources is spent. So maybe I should start thinking of this as more like a kind of a kite shape where that middle tier, if we can keep people sick on expensive treatments and not do surgeries, maybe that is a more accurate picture of the current healthcare system in America. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't really thought in shapes quite yet. <laughs> um, but <laughs> You'll get there. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm sure I'll, it'll come to me in my dreams. Um but yeah, you know, so they crash into dialysis and they're in the hospital and then they're seen by a nephrologist who says, you know, you need dialysis. And that nephrologist refers them to a dialysis clinic. Well, of course, this person now needs dialysis. But what that patient doesn't know is the dialysis clinic that they are being referred to, that doctor probably has a stake in it, meaning there's joint ventures between nephrologists and the dialysis corporations, so that the practitioners who basically round at these clinics can get some money off the back end as well. And so you have doctors, nephrologists, who the more patients they see, and theoretically, I mean, look, there's plenty of great nephrologists out there, but financially, they're rewarded more for the more patients they see on dialysis and not transplant. And of course, the dialysis corporations, for sure, Right. And so you have the clinic, which is owned by a corporation that doesn't have an incentive to get you transplanted. And then you have the doctors overseeing the patients at those clinics that doesn't have a financial incentive to get you transplanted. And what makes matters worse is that they both have an investment in this clinic. Right. Right. So you're, you're saying like if I go see a doctor who's one of the big two, you know, employee at this clinic, where is the incentive for that doctor to take a look at me and say, hey, you don't need our services or you can go get this elsewhere? I was kind of under the impression that you're talking about if you get a doctor who refers you into this, then there's money exchanging hands. And, and you know, there's a bunch of laws that say oh, that's not that's not acceptable. But yeah, I totally agree with you. When you go into a single one, it's like a massive conflict of interest. And again, like we see this in the hospitals, it's like if your primary care refers you to a specialist and refers you to a surgeon and you all have the same person on your paycheck, is that a massive conflict of interest? I'm of the opinion that it is. Right. Are they all in the same medical group? Right. I, I would say, yeah, it, it is a massive conflict of interest. Right. Yeah. So you're basically being treated. And it may be that this clinic, you have now have a chronic illness. You don't have a lot of energy. And maybe this clinic is further away than some other clinic that might be better for you. But you don't know that because you trust the doctor that is saying, hey, why don't you go to this clinic? They're really the gatekeepers to who gets basically referred to what clinic and the dialysis corporations were smart and they knew this and they said, Hey, would you like to invest and be, you know, a partial owner in this clinic? Because that ensures them a steady feed, right? Then the question is, how much time are they going to spend educating patients about transplant? Now, Medicare says that the clinics are responsible, it doesn't say specifically necessarily who is supposed to educate these patients about transplantation. And so it kind of, it hasn't been prioritized 
particularly because it's something that goes against the bottom line. And you see that same thing, a lack of education across healthcare, because you know, patients just don't have enough time with a trusted professional that has, you know, their uh, their best interests in mind, I would say, in this particular scenario. So, yeah, I'm sitting here shaking my head, you know, behind the camera saying, yeah, incentives are a big problem. And time spent with patients to educate them is a huge issue up and down the entire healthcare industry. Right. And, you know, your focus has been on primary care. But one of the patients I interviewed, he had a very high creatinine his whole life. He didn't live a healthy lifestyle. For sure. And he was told, eh, cut out the salts, lose weight. They always did a urine test and he always had a very high creatinine level. And that's really what he was told. He was given like a, a routine, this is what you should do, right? But at no point did anybody say, your kidneys are, are withering away. You're destroying your kidneys. If you look up creatinine, just in a simple Google search, It'll say high creatinine levels typically mean that your kidneys aren't functioning well. And so spending that time to say, hey, this is what this means. If you don't change, this is what your life is going to be like. You're going to be attached to a machine three to four times a week. And this worked with smoking. People said, hey, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to have a hole in your neck and you remember those advertisements? Oh, yeah. And they the, the boxes with like the zombie thing on it. Right. Oh, yeah. So they're just not the incentive to spend the time at the primary care level to prevent all this stuff from happening in the first place. Follow the money, David. Follow the money. I got a, a one last question for you as our as our time comes to an end here. So, you know, I'm going to give you a scenario where you have control over every single billboard in the United States to get your message out. What do you put on that billboard? Look into living donation. Living donation right now we have 90,000, it should be 300,000, but we have 90,000 people that are on this wait list and they're essentially waiting for somebody else to die so that they can live, which is a very morbid thought. People, if they're healthy, can donate a kidney and still live a normal life. It doesn't affect your life expectancy. And if they want to learn more about this, they can go to thegreatsocialexperiment.net. I'm in a pilot program right now where we're looking to help expand living donation. So I encourage anybody who's interested, feel free to contact me, feel free to listen to the series, feel free to explore the website. And I really appreciate you engaging in this conversation, Chris. Absolutely. David Chrisman, creator of the Great Social Experiment podcast documentary series. Go check it out. And, you know, I love their altruistic goals. Uh, organ donors are something that can save a lot of people's lives. And, and I totally agree with you. And, you know, there's so much common ground amongst people and, and experiences that it's fun to shed light on where we share common pain points, common solutions. And it's not, you know, there's a lot of gray area and things that work for some people don't work for others. And that's the beauty of just sitting down and having a conversation. Once again, David Christman created the Great Social Experiment. Thank you, David, for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you, Chris. That's going to do it for this episode. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I'm your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all of our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced and managed by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. 
If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.